We're going to be in the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. turn there, would you join me in prayer? We'll pray, of course, for those who are affected by the coronavirus and uh, those who are not able to gather with us because of the measures that are put in place. And we're going to pray specifically for the Lord to not only heal and protect those who are most vulnerable among us, but to help us quickly get a grasp on, on, on this so that most people's lives can go back to normal. So would you pray for me and, uh, and for each other? Let's go. Father, thank you, God, for your word that we're about to study. As we prepare our hearts now and our minds to hear it, receive it, we offer, God, a prayer of intercession for those who have been affected uh, by the coronavirus, those who have particularly uh, vulnerable, who have fallen ill, uh, who are in very dangerous positions of, of losing their lives, of uh, facing a very significant uh, uh, and demanding next few weeks as they try to recover. We pray specifically for them, our older uh, uh, friends and families and uh, co-workers, whoever they may be. Would you protect them now? And would you protect all of us and our loved ones as we, as we do our best to um, mind our, our, our space and care for our health, but also as we put measures in place to care for the health of others? Lord, we are trusting you in this. And even while we trust, we are also taking particular steps to help mitigate the spread of this virus. But we know that all things are in your hands. And that not a molecule, not one nuclear virus can ever move without your say-so. And so we're trusting, God, that your purposes for this are bigger than we can understand. And that as your promise and your word says will work together for the good of those who love you and that you are showing yourself even through the, the pandemic and you're showing yourself even through the church as it responds. You're showing yourself through the faith of Christians, even those who may be uh, infected. We're praying, God, that you are glorified in all of this. Deepen our trust in the midst of chaotic times. Help us to teach and preach that trust and model it for others and teach us, God, what it means to be a church a community of grace that walks faithfully and humbly before you and knowing that all things are in your hand. Lord, we trust you and we ask and pray all of these things again in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the coronavirus is indeed uh, upsetting the social fabric of our culture, not just ours, but many nations and countries around the world have had their social Lives uh, uprooted, their economic statuses have gone in chaos, the stocks are down, or so the news tells me, things are in a bit of a panic, both socially and economically. And we've grown accustomed to a certain way of life, and moments like these remind us just how fragile that way of life often can be. And while we're thankful for modern conveniences like hospitals and Purell hand sanitizers. We're also uh, uh, humans. We also know the frailty of our own systems and how something so small like the coronavirus can send us to death even. 
So as we walk faithfully and humbly before God, I want to encourage you as we pray to model your faith and model your trust in God before others. And despite the fact that the coronavirus has caused many to wonder what the future will look like, and some things may be changed irreparably, that we can trust and walk forward. There's something I think, though, worthy of noting in the past several weeks about the coronavirus, that it has a strange yet admirable effect on the world around us. And that's this general sense of unity that the world seems to now possess, a sense of oneness, and not just within communities, but again, the world over, that countries and people via social media are working together in the attempt to stop the spread of the virus. And despite the good and the valuable wisdom of what's being called social distancing and the, and the cautious discretion that we ought to exercise as we gather together, we see that communities from all over are banding together for a principal cause. That's to slow, if not stop, the spread of the virus. So through our many disagreements, and there are many, particularly here, political and otherwise, it seems for now at least that we all can agree on the need to help keep each other, and especially our most vulnerable, safe and healthy. Friends, that's rare. There's many false senses of unity that we can have. There's, there's unity among our sports team. There's unity, unity among our political spheres. But often we don't see such unity as we see in the world today. That unity may be shallow, but it's a real sense, a general sense of unity nonetheless. But once, Lord willing, this spread of the coronavirus is contained and the imminent uh, a threat of infection to each one of us is passed, the emergency measures are lifted and the schools are reopened and the community centers and the theaters now are reopened, the world will have to find another source of its unity. It will have to find another thing to unify it in the same way that it's unified now. Because otherwise, we'll be back to the identity politics of our culture. We'll be back to the polarizing tension between the black and blues versus the white and golds of our time and cultural moment. That's a reference to the dress, if you're not familiar. But what will stop us the, the, the church from descending back into the same sort of tensions, the same sort of chaos and disunity that the world thrives in. Well, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is as timely as ever to us. So let's read. We're going to pick up in verse 10 and we'll read to verse 18. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, Gaius, so that may no one may say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Pray with me again. Father, this is your word. We give thanks to you for it. Help us now to hear it, receive it, and obey it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see Paul's call to, to unity in the Corinthian church. And as we continue reading and studying, we'll see why such unity was needed. There obviously were factions among them that within this church, they have broken up into different camps. Now, they haven't split. This isn't church splits. These are church factions. This is disunity within the body of Christ. He says some are saying that they follow Paul, others Apollos, others Peter, that's Cephas, and others Christ. And there are these camps that have pitted against one another inside the church, rivalries, tensions. Now, it's right to listen to, admire, and even follow wise men, and especially Christ. But what Paul's getting at here is the factions, the loyalties that have centered around these people, have actually superseded the unity that comes from following Christ above all else. Even those, Paul says, who claim to be following Christ are still encamping themselves and distinguishing themselves in a way that breeds disunity than actually breeding unity. Though we may follow Christ and claim to be his disciples, we can do so in a way that actually breeds disunity. Paul says no matter what your camp is, if disunity among the church and the brothers is the result, you cannot say that you are actually in Christ. So Paul makes an appeal for Christian unity. We talked about Christian grace, the community of grace that was, that was created and formed by God saving and purposing us. It says that we're called to be saints in verse 2. And then we saw that there is a Christian form of thanksgiving that is different than the world's thanksgiving. Here we see that there is Christian unity that is greater, deeper, and more profound than the world's unity. The unity that the world has now over the pandemic of of the coronavirus is nothing compared to the unity that Christians ought to have, particularly churches ought to have in relation with its members. Paul makes an appeal for Christian unity. And he does by two means. He does it first by the nature of their relationship with one another. What does he call them? He reminds them that they are brothers. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. He calls them brothers several other times. He says again in verse 11, there are quarrels among you, my brothers. He's, he's inciting the, the, the reality that they have been made a family of God. They've called, been called saints, sanctified, set apart for the worship of God. Christ is their elder brother. God is their father. In verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So by the nature of their relationship to one another as families, as brothers and as sisters, he appeals to them for unity. See, God made them a family. That's what a church is. It is a family. A family not unlike our own biological family, in which we share DNA, flesh and blood. But a family also that has been brought into the fellowship of the Son. As he says in verse 9, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. So you've been made brothers and sisters. You've been made co-laborers and heirs with Christ. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter. You are in the household of God, Paul will say in Ephesians and in 1 Timothy. So by the nature of their relationship to one another as family, he appeals to unity. God made them family, but their divisions and their factions ignore the reality of their, of their family. Ignores the reality by actually distorting it. Their brothers and sisters together in reality, but now they are enemies. Do you see what conflict does? What disunity does? It actually distorts reality by making family into enemies brothers and sisters into adversaries. You get entrenched along certain lines and certain parties that those who are with you in Christ no longer are with you in unity. Disunity ignores the reality of our adoption by distorting that brothers and sisters are not friends, not families, but enemies. See, these factions and these divisions actually tear at the fabric of Christ's body. The the word here for division is that which is torn, like a garment, which is ripped. Not completely torn into two, but has been sort of torn asunder. It's no longer whole or complete. And Paul says that you have been torn. And these factions and these divisions that are among you caused by the quarrels that you have, the conflicts that you have, the contentions with one another that you have are actually tearing at the fabric of Christ's body. Brothers and sisters, you you are are a fabric woven together by God's grace. Disunity actually rips apart that fabric. It, It unravels that which Christ has brought together into the fellowship of his son. So if the church is divided, then Christ is divided. Look in verse 13. He asks rhetorically, is Christ divided? The answer is more of an imperative and a statement. Christ's body is divided because of your quarrels, because of your conflicts. So if the church is divided, then it is said Christ is divided because the church is the body of Christ. He is our head, our authority. What do we say about our authority in the head if the body is disunified? The body is divided. So by the nature of their relationship to one another, their adoption into the household of God, Paul appeals to them and says to be unified. But he also appeals 
by the nature of their relationship to Christ. Not just the relationship to one another as brothers and sisters, the household and the family of God, but by their nature, the nature of their relationship to Christ himself. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. The unity in Christ is what's created by his person and his work. So he appeals to their relationship to Christ in which they must agree. Their disunity, the the, the Corinthians' disunity, is the very antithesis of their fellowship with the Son and their status as God's holy people. If God called them to be saints, in verse 2, and called them into the fellowship of His Son, and yet there is no real fellowship among them, we see ultimately that their relationship with Christ is also fractured and is also distorted, not just among themselves, but now they have distorted their relationship to God through Christ, which is the very opposite of what the gospel has secured for them. So now we begin to see why this is an important matter, why disunity and conflict and contentions in the church are very dangerous and poisonous cancers. And so while Paul, Paul affirms them in the first couple of verses, what God has done in their life, He does so, so that He can appeal to them. Christ has made you this way, not so that you can have divisions, factions, and quarrels, but so that you could represent Him, your head, in unity. So disunity and division is not only contrary to the work of Christ, but it's blatant insubordination to the authority of Christ. Christ purchased the church with his blood. He established a new covenant in his blood. He called you by his blood. He suffered and died for you to be a son or a daughter of the Father. And so to have divisions and and quarrels that lead to disunity and factions in the church is actually not just a, a, a work contrary to the work of Christ, but it's insubordinate to the authority of Christ. He who stands over us in dominion, He who exercises all power and wisdom. We reject when we rebel, when we enter into conflict, when we do not walk in unity. And so Paul appeals for Christian unity by the nature of their relationship with one another and by the nature of their relationship to Christ. Well, there's lots of causes for disunity. Of course, we see here in our text the cause here for disunity was their allegiance to people over Christ. We see that disunity and and quarrels will result when we focus on others, including ourselves, before Christ. So one of the causes of disunity is when we put our eyes and our focus and our allegiance either on ourselves or on somebody else above Christ. Again, it's right to follow, listen, admire, and even give allegiance to a man, a woman, a leader. But to do so before Christ, and in contrary doctrine and faithfulness to Christ, is when disunity that dishonors Christ results. See, look, imperfect people like us are going to need a perfect Savior. By God's grace, we have in Christ. But when we demand perfect Christians, we're going to be doing two things. 
First, we place too heavy a burden on our brothers and our sisters, which they cannot and should not bear. And we'll diminish the perfections of Christ by looking for it elsewhere. Aren't burdens, aren't quarrels, aren't divisions ultimately an unmet expectation we have? Isn't it a burden we've placed on somebody else that they did not satisfy for us? Isn't it an expectation about the perfection or the character or the service of another person which they did not fulfill to our liking and therefore we are different and now opposed? When we place these sort of burdens on on each other, we weigh each other down. And we cause us to bear those burdens which we are not meant to bear. But beyond that, we diminish the perfections of Christ because He alone can bear them. And so when we expect perfection from one another and not receive it, and therefore are in conflict from one another, and we do not turn to Christ, but rather double down in our demand for perfection from one another, we diminish the, diminish the work of Christ. So Christ stands as our perfect Savior to remind us that He alone can carry our burdens. He alone is worthy of our allegiance above all people. So the cause of disunity ultimately happens when we focus on others before Christ. But we also see disunity caused when there is a loss of our own identity in Christ. When we lose sight of who we are in Christ, that is, accepted and redeemed and made new creatures and are growing disciples, when we lose that identity, we allow the fears and the temptations and the sin of the world and within our own heart to lead us off course. And therefore, we have quarrels and divisions and disunity. Friends, remember that Christ makes you a new creature. He has made us a community of grace. We are to live and walk faithfully in the gospel. But when the temptations of the world creep in, when doubts and fears cause us to lose sight of our identity in Christ, we give in to those things. And we are veered off course. So disunity happens not only when we rest our hopes and our expectations on people, set our allegiances and purposes on people who cannot and should not bear them, but also when the cares of the world overtake our concerns and our affections for Christ and we lose sight of our own identity. Friends, because you are accepted by the Father in Christ, you do not have to fight for the acceptance of others. While it is good to be accepted, and we should strive to to be accepted in some sense, our source of validation and ultimate source of acceptance comes from the Father. Not from me, not from our parents, not from the mature person in the church, not from the person we want to most impress. We're redeemed by God, made new creatures by God. We are being grown in faith and faithfulness by God, and therefore we must not look to others or to the world for our identity, but remain steadfast. So he appeals to them in Christian unity, and we see the, the discord that happens because of these things. Well, notice then the nature of the kind of Christian unity he calls for in the second part of verse 10. He says, he appeals that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So we have three ultimate pictures of unity. The first is of agreement. 
The second is a lack of division. And the third is a united, a completedness in the same mind and judgment. Agreement, no divisions, and united in the same mind and judgment. Well, what does he mean when he says that, they're, that all of you agree? What does he mean by, when he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree? Now, there's lots of disagreements on lots of matters. My wife and I can hardly disagree on what show to watch, let alone disagree on what colors to paint our house and what to name our children and almost on everything we can find a matter to disagree on. Is that then by definition a disunity in the body of Christ? Well, no. Of course, we recognize there's plenty of things we can disagree on and not threaten the unity that Christ's body should preserve. So what does it mean by agreement here? Well, it means unity, not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we must all do the same thing, address the same way, like the same things, say and speak the same words. We are talking about unity. That means a shared and common purpose, not uniformity. We don't all have to look alike, think alike, be alike in every way, in every fashion. And yet we must, nonetheless, be unified. The idea here is that there is a whole, a complete whole, without gaps, without tears or fractions or divisions. Unity means that you are complete, together, that you are one. We see this in many other pictures, but maybe no less the, better than the picture of marriage, where the two are made one flesh. This marriage is what we call a union, because the two have become one. When we talk about unity, not simply in marriage, but in the church, we are talking about a togetherness that cannot be separated by trivial disagreements. Again, we say unity, not uniformity. Ultimately, we mean the kind of agreements that are agreements of the heart. Agreements of the heart. Well, what are agreements of the heart? What, is, what does that mean? Well, these are shared affections among a diverse people that leads to a gospel unity in diversity. Agreements of the heart are shared affections that which we love and set our minds and hopes on among a diverse people that leads to a gospel unity, oneness, in the midst of a diversity. So is unity not uniformity? Unity in diversity. The agreements of the heart means that our hopes and our affections are set on the same thing. We have the same concerns, the same purpose, the same mission, the same vision. That's the things we ought to be unified in. We can outline those and, and, and put a border around those in terms of our doctrine, but we care about Christ. We care about the gospel. We care about the mission of taking the gospel to the world. We can be diverse in all sorts of ways, culturally, fashion-wise, our taste in music, even in some interpretations of passages of the Bible. But in these things where we must agree on, we come together in shared affections. Friends, this is the kind of unity and agreement we must have. Augustine has been quoted as saying that in all things, charity, in some things, unity. 
So we already agree. Secondly, he calls for no divisions. He appeals that we all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Of course, this would come logically from our agreement. There should be no divisions among you. See, our disagreement and our minor divisions actually ought to lead us to a greater unity and remind us of our common identity of Christ, not actually drive a wedge between us. What Paul is worried about and what Paul is calling out here is is that sort of disagreement of the heart that separates us significantly, that causes a division and a rupture in our fellowship with one another and with Christ. There must not be any of those tears in the fabric of our church that leads us to break fellowship, that causes us to harbor resentment, that causes us to invite conflict. No divisions, he says. There should be no divisions among you. Remember, he does not mean that you must agree in all things in every way, but rather in all agreements of the heart you must share these affections. And these minor divisions we have, these smaller disagreements that we will inevitably have, should lead us to the greater unity that we have in Christ. Remind us of our common identity in Christ. Not drive a wedge between us. He's calling the Corinthians' attention back to what they share in common, being greater and of more importance than what they have and different. So they are to be in agreement. They are to have no divisions among them. But then he says to be united in the same mind and judgment. To be united in the same mind and judgment. Well, this, if you're familiar with the Bible, may call to mind what he calls in Philippians the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, he says this to the Philippians. If there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. This is a direct parallel to ultimately what he says here, skewed a little bit in our English version. Which it says to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. What does Paul mean when he talks about having the same mind together? What is this sort of unity of thought and word and judgment that we are to have? It's this that was modeled in Christ. That he tells the the Philippians to have among themselves. The humility to give yourself for the sake of others. Do you see how that's the exact opposite of what the Corinthians are doing? 
setting themselves up in opposition to one another, rather than like Christ, giving themselves over for the service, the good, and the love of others. He says you need to be unified in the same mind and in the same judgment, agreed upon on all matters of the heart, the gospel, the Christ we know and love who has died for us, coming together on the truths of his word and promises, humbling ourselves in full allegiance to Christ who has given himself for us. And as he goes, so do we. Exercising the humility necessary for unity. You cannot have true prospering unity in the church if you do not exercise humility. That's what Paul is reminding them. That their factions are ultimately because of their pride. That they think they're so right and the others are so wrong, they're unwilling to move and exercise the unity that Christ has secured for them in their blood, in his blood. And therefore, humility is needed. The humility of Christ even. The kind of humility that would allow him to take on flesh. And although he was equal with God, he did not count it equal, but he emptied himself. He takes on the form of a servant. He takes on human form, humbles himself, and is obedient to the point of death on the cross. This is the humility Christ models for us. The kind of humility that we are called to embody ourselves. So the nature of Christian humility is that we have the agreements of the heart, of our affections, that we drive out the sort of divisions that would be seen as tears in the fabric of our church and our fellowship, and that we together love and serve one another in such a way and with real humility as to model the mind of Christ, to possess it among ourselves so that we can be united, one, not only with each other, but with the Lord. Well, if the nature of Christian unity is at work in our lives, we should see then the blessing of Christian unity. There are ultimately two things that come from Christian unity, other than the fact that we get along. The first is that unity is heavenly. It's literally a picture of heaven. It gives us a glimpse and a taste of what heaven will be like when the saints dwell in unity together. It refreshes you. It comforts you. It draws your eyes to heaven into the perfections of Christ. But disunity will cause you to spurn the church, that church for which Christ has died. It will distract your desires from heaven and cause you to feast on other things of the world. But unity is heavenly. It's godly. For who is more unified than the Godhead? The Father, Son, and Spirit living and existing in perfect harmony and unity together for all of eternity. But we share in that fellowship with them. In the church there is to be unity which refreshes and comforts the souls and draws our eyes to heaven. How many people do we know that have rejected the church and rejected the gospel because of the disunity of the church that they may have grown up in? We've seen the hypocrisy, the infighting, and the backbiting of Christians against one another and therefore have turned their backs and shut their ears to ever hearing the gospel. If they had come into a church 
where there is a culture of unity, and therefore the culture of heaven, how much more then would their hearts be given to receive the gospel? As we preach, this is what Christ has done for you. They see it modeled in your lives. Unity is heavenly. Beyond that, as we see, it's also attractive. Unity is one of the main evangelical tools the church has at its disposal. Jesus says as much in his prayer in John 17. In verse 17, verses 20 to 23, he says to sanctify them as he prays to God, to sanctify them, his disciples, in the truth. And your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. That's the setting apart by God's word and the gospel. Then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you loved me. What what is Christ praying for? We're certainly praying that the world would know the love of God, the Father, through Jesus. But how does he pray and expect the love of God the Father, through Jesus, to be displayed to the world? Through the unity of his disciples. What disservice we have done to the gospel when we have lived in disunity among each other. When we fail to reconcile our conflicts. When we have held bitterness and resentment in our hearts. Friends, foundation has not been immune to this sort of disunity. And I fear that we have hurt the work of the gospel in Fredericksburg because we have allowed it. But we need to hear Paul's word, Jesus' word, that unity is the means by which God is bringing people to hear and see and to know the love of Christ. They are coming to a real and experiential taste of unity and of God himself through our church. Unity is attractive. God designed the church so that in our unity, he may display himself and his love to the world. And it stands to reason that when we are not unified together, when there are factions and quarrels and divisions among us, we cannot do a proper service to that end. And it should grieve us. We should lament at the fact that there are churches and even at times our own lives that we have stood in opposition to the work of the gospel because we could not get over our own selves. But the blessing of Christian unity when it is practiced and exercised among the saints because we recognize who we are in Christ as a family and a body of Jesus that others will come to know him and his love through us. That should motivate us. Paul goes on then to talk a little bit about himself and say that I'm not very important. He says, is Christ, verse 13, divided? Paul crucify for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I thank God I baptized none of you except a few. 
For Christ didn't send me, he says in verse 17, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So he says that the, the, the person, Paul, the apostle, or Peter, or Apollos, or whoever it may be that we center our lives around and have allowed the allegiance of that person to supersede the allegiance of Christ, they're not important. Their character and the way they speak and the style and their effectiveness in preaching is not important. It is the gospel that is important. The power of the gospel must be believed and treasured if unity is to thrive. When our eyes get off the gospel, disunity creeps in. The gospel is powerful But Paul is not. Paul does not have the power to save. He doesn't have the power to give salvation. He doesn't have the power to motivate. Now, by the virtue of his apostolic authority, he can command. And yet here he chooses to say, it doesn't matter how I speak. If I preach the gospel, that's the power of God. If I I come with elegant speech, with my own wisdom, if I puff up myself and tell you to look at me and to follow me, and I encourage the factions that have grown up among you, then the gospel will be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ will be emptied of its power. What does he mean by that? Well, the cross, which is emptied of its power, is empty of Christ. Why do I say that? Because Christ, Paul will say in verse 24 in the same chapter, Christ is the power in the wisdom of God. So he says, I preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, that is sort of in his own sophistry, lest the cross be of Christ be emptied of its power. We take Christ off the cross and you put Paul on it, there's no power there. Take Christ off the cross, you put Apollos on it, there's no power there. If Bobby were to be on the cross, if John Piper were to be on the cross, if your favorite preacher or pastor or a person in your mind that you admire the most is on the cross, there is no power there. The cross which is emptied of its power is empty of Christ. It is a Christless cross because Christ himself and only Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So to preach that kind of Christless cross and to live in accordance to a Christless cross that is a gospel in which Christ is is not treasured supremely above all else. It's to preach and to live in accordance to a powerless gospel, to a platitude with no real teeth. It's powerless, he says. Well, powerless then to do what? Powerless to atone. There's no atonement for sins because the person who died upon the cross was not, not worthy of the acceptance before God. He was not perfect. Paul was a sinner. He was a persecutor of the church, an idolater, a murderer. He could not atone for your sins. The most righteous person you know could not atone for your sins. Christ alone. And so if you take Christ off the cross, you do not have the power. The cross does not have the power to atone for your sins, but it also doesn't have the power to unite a church together. There have been many movements that have been started by very powerful and charismatic leaders. But eventually, over time, those movements end. There's only been one movement who has existed for millennia. That's Christianity. And it will be the only movement that is united around a single person that will go on to eternity. 
because Christ alone has the power to unite a people, to gather and to bring people together from all different walks and backgrounds and even dispositions and even cultures and even ethnicities and even political spectrums and unite them together for the cause of the glory of God. But a Christless cross can't unite. It may for a time start a movement, but it can't actually unite a people. A Christless cross is powerless to atone, it's powerless to unite, but it's also powerless to sustain us in the midst of trial and difficult circumstances, and certainly it's powerless to sustain us into the end. Remember what he says in verse 8, that as we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain us, God will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is faithful. God is faithful to us. A crossless Christ will not sustain us. There is no hope. There is no effective power. The efficacy of the cross is drained to atone, to unite, and sustain. And so Paul says, don't put Paul on the cross. Don't elevate me. Don't put Apollos. Don't put Peter. All good and godly men you should, you should model. Christ alone has the power as a son of God, to do these things. Is your idea of the atonement, is your idea of the sustaining work of God tied to the person of Jesus, or is it tied to somebody else? Perhaps and most likely it's tied to yourself and your own ability to do what God has commanded us in our own strength rather than in the strength Christ provides. Friends, only the gospel in which Christ has been crucified on the cross for your sins is powerful enough to save us, to sustain us, and to unite us together. So Paul appeals to them to to have this sort of unity, a unity that is not centered around a person like Paul, not centered around a faction or an idea about who speaks better, about what doctrine makes the most sense, but around the gospel of Jesus alone. Anything else is emptying the cross of its power. How should we live? In light of the appeal for unity to the Corinthians and to us this morning, how should we live? Friends, we must strive for the unity of the body. Strive for it. That is, to, to work and to endeavor and to labor and to diligently pursue the unity of the body. It's not a small thing to disagree with a brother or sister. It's not a small thing. There can be small things on which to disagree about. But disagreements in and of themselves are not small things. So you should strive for the unity of the body. Again, listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says in the first six verses, I urge you, it's the same sort of word, I appeal to you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
So the overarching supremacy of God and Christ means that the unity of the body is of utmost and paramount importance for us as Christians, particularly for those who are joined together in membership at a local church. Strive to maintain that unity. Disagreements are no small things. So work, endeavor. He says to walk with humility and gentleness. Be patient, bear with one another, and love because there is only one body. And disunity and factions and divisions tear that body apart. Ask yourself, what is so important to me that I would be unable to live peacefully, peaceably with other Christians if they were in disagreement? What is so important to me that I would be unable to live peaceably with other Christians if they were in disagreement? Now hopefully part of that answer is the deity of Christ. I cannot live peaceably with other Christians if they deny the deity of Christ. In some instances, I cannot live peaceably with other Christians on other matters of doctrine. There are different denominations because we have determined that some of these doctrines are important enough for us to fellowship separately. Think baptism and the Lord's Supper. But is there enough of a disunity that I would break fellowship ultimately with a Christian over a matter of lesser importance. This may take just some insight and some examination of what is so important to you that you would be unable to live peaceably with another Christian if they were in disagreement. If you, a Republican, learned that the neighbor sitting next to you was a Democrat and voted regularly for a Democrat, Could you live peaceably with that person? Could you live peaceably with somebody who was fighting sin, a sin that you found deplorable? Could you live peaceably with somebody who disagreed with an important matter of doctrine in your own mind, yet not which is held as an essential in the church? Ask yourself what is so important that you would break that fellowship over if another Christian were a disagreement. But friends, Christian unity isn't a general practice only by which all Christians in every part of the world may come together and relate to one another. We share unity with all Christians in all places and in all times we have this in common, but it is also a very particular unity. It's meant to be felt and lived out and experienced in the local church, in the very real gathering of the church together when we commit to the good of each other and other like-minded Christians for the sake of the gospel. So not a general unity, but a particular unity that is felt and experienced and lived out with one another. So if you can't put a name to whom you're unified with, you have not taken it far enough. Friends, look around you. Members of foundation, consider those on the roster. You are in unity, real, particular, committed unity to those people. And you are to live out and feel and experience gospel unity with them. Not simply, generally speaking, with all Christians. So Paul is writing to a church, a church with real people. He says, each one of you have found yourself in this party. They have real issues. And the unity they have together must be real. Not an idea not a nicety or a platitude, 
but a unity they must have among each other. He's calling for those who align with Apollos and those who align with Paul to unify and reconcile themselves. It's not general, it's particular. So how do we live? We live humbly, forgiving, peaceably. We overlook the small infractions. We bear with the weak and the failings of the weak. We even help them with their burdens. I can consider the example of Christ, Paul says in Philippians. The humility that he embodied that led him to the cross. Do you see how the gospel breeds unity among its people? So friends, be humble. Do not think more highly of yourselves than others. Do not put yourselves before the needs of others. Do not refuse to lift the burdens of others. Do not refuse to forgive or overlook the sins of others. Yes, even the sins that have been committed and wronged against you. There may be a time for correction, rebuke, but ultimately, mercy and humility must prevail on the church. That we do not get bogged down and tied down with disagreements that lead to to factions, but rather, we look to Christ, the model of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame that he took in his own flesh the penalty for sin. And we can celebrate that we have a cross that is not empty of its power, but we have a cross on which Christ was crucified. We have a Savior who was put to death for our sins and absorbed all of the wrath of God against our sins so that those who might believe and have faith in Christ would be saved. If that doesn't lead to unity because you share that with another brother or sister in this room, then your hope and your faith is in the wrong place. Friends, look to Christ. Consider his death, his resurrection, even now his intercession for us. His prayer in John 17, that we would be unified and one together for the sake of the mission of God. And we walk faithfully and humbly before him. Even in the midst of our current global pandemic, we can walk in faithfulness and unity together for the glory of God. Let's, let's pray. There's much more to be said about what this looks like, Father, but we ask you teach us. We know you have modeled this perfectly for us in Christ, and so we ask that you would help us set our eyes on him, our hopes on him, that we would not be divided by false senses of, of allegiance, we not elevate certain people above their standing and that we would not puff ourselves up and place ourselves before others. But really the unity that comes from the gospel is a unity that lays ourselves down for the sake of others. Would we have this mind among ourselves? We ask for wisdom as we live this out, for endurance, conviction as we seek to embody it, and for help in the many ways we will fail to do it. We trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.